This is an ABC podcast. How good is Australia? Peter Dutton will know he's alive each and every day. The ability to take religion into account in staffing decisions was very important to them. A shameful and pathetic attempt. That is such a bubble question. I'm just going to leave that one in the bubble. Welcome to the party room. I'm Fran Kelly from Insiders. And I'm Patricia Carvellis from RN Drive. Fran... Let's talk about the economy, stupid. Oh, I'm not calling you stupid. You get it. You just call me stupid. I would never call you stupid. You're not stupid, so I couldn't. I'd be fact-checked by RMIT. I'd be wrong. <laughs> the Prime Minister used a key speech on Wednesday to announce an acceleration of spending on road and rail projects, you know, essentially turbocharging the economy, bringing infrastructure forward. It was $3.8 billion. Here he is on Channel 9. All of these projects are proper projects which are going to get people home and sooner and safer, will strengthen our economy, improve how our economy works, not just now but well into the future. So it's careful, considered investment, not just helping jobs now, but helping our economy and, and, and the livability of both our regions and our cities into the future. I think we should look at the figures first because it sounds like a lot of money, but actually when you're talking infrastructure, it's not $3.8 billion over four years. Only $1 billion of that is new money. So it's important nevertheless because it makes sure that every dollar that can be spent on building productive infrastructure is being spent and this also leverages more state money. So it's, it's creating jobs ultimately in the long term, boosting productivity, you know, as the PM was saying there, you know, careful, considered investment. But it's not putting money into people's pockets right now to go out and spend in the shops. And that's what economists, banks and Labor have been calling for. We've got record low consumer spending. Consumer confidence has been knocked because the Reserve Bank interest rate cuts, funnily enough, haven't helped boost the economy. They've seemed to have knocked confidence. So if we needed money now to put people in people's pockets so they went out and spend to help get retail spending up, for instance, this won't do it. But what it does do is it allows the government to signal we're in control, don't worry, as I say, careful, considered investment and don't panic. Don't panic. And also, again, a nod to voters, a nod to people who probably are a bit worried about the economy. They hear the, you know, they hear the headlines, they hear the news saying things are slowing down, people aren't spending. It creates this kind of behaviour. It's very circular. We're in control is what I think the political signal is, yes, don't worry, we're going to deliver that surplus. But we're also going to watch it and do things when we think when it's we necessary. When we need them as required. So no panic, you know, money to go out and buy a big TV. That's not what we're on about. No, no big TVs at this stage. They're also at pains to to distinguish themselves from Labor, saying this wasn't a knee-jerk reaction back mm. to that, but really actually sticking the boot in that speech that the Prime Minister delivered into Labor. We're not engaged in any um, sort of panic measures or crisis measures. I mean, you don't run the country on DEFCON 1 the whole time um, at, or at any time unless it's absolutely critical um, on those sorts of issues. So we're calmly and soberly working through these issues. So get the message, Labor reckless. Alert but not alarmed. But Labor reckless, we're not reckless. Yeah, and this goes back to the post-GFC where Labor did send out all those checks. The government then and since have called that reckless. A lot of economists, including, you know, and overseas leaders, for instance, have looked on and said, wow, that was great action. That actually kept Australia out of recession, unlike the rest of the world. But the political story back here from the coalition has always been that was reckless spending. It's trying to inject that again and to say, look, we're calm, considered in control and responsible. Now, one area where there wasn't a lot of control and there should have been a lot of control, do you like how I did that, was a story that broke on the same day as the Prime Minister's big infrastructure spend, and that's Westpac and a failure to obey anti-money laundering and counter-terror finance laws, which allowed a customer to make payments to a person in the Philippines who was later arrested for child sex trafficking and live streaming child sex shows. 
I don't have really a lot of words other than disgust this for is this shocking. story. I mean, this is shocking and it's actually blown the government's infrastructure package announcement out of the water and brought back the chaos kind of narrative, if you like, because this is one of our four big banks being exposed by the regulator, Austrac, for um, not properly tracking and reporting under the rules that they all know, that they've all got teams of people to implement, um, something like $11 billion worth of payments, $223 million breaches, which included 12 different customers who they should have identified and, and taken action against, who are depositing money to the Philippines around known child exploitation risks. That's what's been revealed by Austrac. It's a known problem. The whole system is set up to be able to identify these kind of customers and Westpac has basically had a system which they knew a couple of years ago was able to be exploited was like vulnerable. this. Was vulnerable. and they haven't fixed it. And they've only fixed it this year. They've only self-reported and, uh, and now they're in all sorts of trouble. And you'd think after the Banking Royal Commission, which I know was on other issues but still the banks would be trying to kind of clean up their image. This is just diabolical. Get this from the regulator, Austrac, told the federal court, these contraventions are the result of systemic failures in its control environment, indifference by senior management and inadequate oversight by the board. The indifference by senior management. And as I say, these banks have huge risk departments. This is what they're meant to be picking up. This was a failure. And so the political reaction, well, you'd expect it to be tough. Uh, If it wasn't, I think it would be outrageous. And the Prime Minister delivered. He he weighed in on the allegations saying he was absolutely appalled. I mean, the government, wall-to-wall opposition, anyone you can name, disgusted. How can you not be disgusted? Yeah. It's, it's, there's calls no... for the CEO to resign, Brian Hartzer. He's not resigning yet. He said it's his job to try and fix up this mess, which is what CEOs always say. Mm. Ultimately, they tend to resign within some months and I, there'll certainly be maximum pressure, I think. Yeah, that's right. Look, we're kind of speed dating on topics, but it's been one of those <laughs> weeks, so let's speed date. China has been, we call it the elephant in the China, room before. China. China is just the non-going conversation and it kind of peaked again, Fran, because Liberal politicians Andrew Hastie and James Patterson, it was revealed on Friday last week, uh, essentially they started a bit of drama. It wasn't necessarily their fault, though, but they were rejected from a study trip. And then there were lots of interventions on China from some very high-profile ex-prime ministers, including Paul Keating. Yeah, well, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute had a day on China, which is a great idea, had lots of inputs from China experts and from one former prime minister, while another, Tony Abbott, was speaking in India on the same topic. So Tony Abbott talked about uh, we may as well get used to a cold peace with China, and what he means by that instead of Cold War is that they remain an important economic and trading partner because, let's face it, without China, our economy tanks. But strategically, we better get used to the fact that we're not going to get close because they are bullies and that's not going to change and we need to stand up to them and form alliances somewhere else. Basically, around that same time, Paul Keating was standing at the ASPE conference saying we've got to stop our, I think the quotes was pious belchings of do-gooder journalists and uh, he was blaming our intelligence and security Security agencies agencies for running our foreign policy. Um, His point was, and this is a great quote I think from Paul Keating in that speech, big states are rude and nasty but that does mean we cannot afford to deal with them, whether it's the United States or China. He's making the point that we, our foreign policy and our media hasn't taken into account that China is not only a rising power, it has risen and we need it and we need it to be strategically engaged. And he feels like we're treating it too suspiciously because of all the inputs from the security agency. Sure. Uh, Look, I think that Paul Keating kind of, in my own view, went too far here and he should be critiqued for his his words and for the message. The idea that Australia can't 
can't continue to you know have a good trade arrangement uh, and continue those relationships while also being a tough speaker on these issues and take a harder line on issues like the Uyghurs, human rights, Hong Kong. We are seeing some unfolding and disturbing things. I think Hong Kong in the last week, and that's it's, it's a whole other podcast, isn't it? Just yes. the the violence in Hong Kong. I think it's reasonable that Australia takes a tougher line. Clearly it's going to make things difficult. Where I think Keating does have a point, his point is that our foreign policy is being driven by our intelligence agencies, our security advisors, and that's led to a sort of a China phobia so that we look at every you know, Chinese student within a university now with suspicion or every research project, joint research project with suspicion. And what we don't want to do is close down these relationships because we need them, because they are world-leading cutting edge in these areas and we need those relationships. I think it is fair to say that perhaps our foreign policy is a bit light on at the moment strategically in working out how to balance this relationship. It's complex. Well, it's the Prime Minister is trying to keep it balanced. Yeah, this um, whole kind of Howard had it right. Well, things have changed a lot a since lot. Howard was in power. So, yeah, maybe he had it right because it was just easier. And as, as, as Keating pointed out, the US has stepped back. It's America first and America only at the moment. That's its predilection. That is a dramatic change. Not only is China rising, America is stepping back. So we have to work work out a relationship. I think, you know, you're going to be whistling Dixie if you think that can only be economic. You have to figure out a way. That's got to be our diplomats engaged. I think clearly we need to develop a better strategic relationship. It's how to do it. The Prime Minister, meantime, is just trying to keep things afloat, saying, well, yes, you know, we we can do both. Um, But we haven't quite worked out how to do that yet. Not very easy to do both, it's uh, fair to say. But it has to be worked out. Catherine Murphy, who is Guardian Australia's political editor. Welcome to the party room. Hello. How are you? We are so fighting fit. The Attorney General was at the National Press Club this week with a pretty wide-ranging speech because, let's face it, he's a pretty wide-ranging minister. He seems to be the minister for everything. But he was discussing religious freedom and he was talking about in the religious freedom bill, the religious discrimination bill that he's going to table eventually sometime this year, we think. Mm -hmm. There Mm -hmm. are going to be more exemptions for religious hospitals and aged care providers. Let's just have a listen to him. Religious hospitals and aged care providers have indicated to us very strongly that similar to religious schools, the ability to take religion into account in staffing decisions was very important to them in maintaining the religious ethos. So that's the Attorney-General signalling he is actually giving ground to the concerns of some of the um, of faith communities. Was this a surprise and what does that actually mean? Does that mean every aged care worker, every nursing assistant in an aged care home or a hospital needs to be of the religion? Well, we're not really sure, Fran, yet are we, because we haven't seen the final iteration of this whole package. But we assume, I think, I think it's reasonable to assume that the exemption uh, for uh, hospitals and aged care facilities will be the same or broadly the same as an exemption that exists at the moment for schools, I believe, in state law. I think that's where those exemptions are are located. So I guess, look, at one level, if the the government's embarking on having a religious freedom bill, uh, well, it's not that, it's a discrimination bill, but anyway, if if they're going down that track, I guess it shouldn't surprise us 
that uh, some of the exemptions that already exist in some laws then are enhanced in the federal law. With that said, though, it's quite something, isn't it? I was brought up a Catholic myself. I respect people of faith. But I think it's reasonable, isn't it, to point out at this stage, given uh, revelations over the last few years, whether or not the churches have actually maintained their social licence in order to demand these sorts of concessions and protections. There have been some appalling revelations, Mm. obviously, about misuses of institutional power in churches. Uh, Everybody listening to this pod will know exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, and of course, and And, I can't do a program on this without getting so many text messages saying, and they get state funding, they get government funding for this. And that's often one of the critiques too, isn't it, Catherine? Well, it is. And it's sort of, it's extraordinary to me. And and again, I emphasise, you know, I'm not, I'm not sort of, um, expressing this view as, as an aggressive secularist, for want of a better word. Like I said, I, I grew up in a, in a f- household where faith was very important. I was educated in the Catholic system my entire education. I, I maintain respect for people of faith and people of sincere religious belief. But it, it seems to me extraordinary <laughs> that you can uh, act in the way the churches have clearly acted over decades. And keep on uh, demanding. And, and keep on demanding exactly. stuff. And and keep on not only demanding, Fran, but getting stuff. Yeah, that's right. Um, I, I think it will depend on where this settles because if it's that the executive of the boards running these institutions, these hospitals, these aged care homes, if it's at that level that they would expect people of, you know, them to be able to make these exemptions under under discrimination laws, fine. But if it's at the level of every worker at those places, I think that's too much. I think it's, uh, and look, I don't know, uh, and, and possibly this is, possibly Porter has answered this question and and, uh, and I have missed his answer to this question. I mean, that that is entirely possible. But I think it works in schools, does it not? You don't necessarily have to be a person of a designated religion. You just have to uphold the values. Yes, it's that. different to that. I asked him, actually, I can, it was my question, a very specific oh, question. I know, oh, I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm amazing. I'm sorry, I'm... But oh. I'll tell you what it was, because I said, yes, hang on a minute, how about if you're, if you're a gay heard. staff member and it's a Catholic hospital or aged care facility and you are, you know, out, I didn't go into this detail, tenants. but you know, you say how wonderful the Mardi Gras is. I didn't quite put it like that to him. It was much more uh-huh. succinct, right? Um, he uh-huh. said, no, you cannot, your sexuality cannot be a grounds, no chance. It has to be your religion, i.e. you're a, a Muslim, for instance, yeah. or, he, you know. They can't sack of... you if you're Catholic, but you are gay. It's kind of amazing. Conf- it's that... confusing. Look, anyway, let's just move on from this, but let's just, because ref- <laughs> well, it's weird. Well, it's we are going to get this table than, this year. We're going to get a table this year. Into a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's kind of how I feel. But one yes. interesting thing is that um, he made it quite clear, Christian Porter, it'll go off to a committee and then a committee and a yes. lot so of we won't get to debating yeah. and voting on this till next We're year. We're talking no, well, exactly. perhaps, into next year. This is not yeah. like even first session kind of stuff. And that, yes, it's incredibly com- um, complicated, he said, because even in our own party room and also in Labor, there's all these different views. So clearly mm. he's signalling to us that he knows this is really difficult. Well, well, exactly, which begs the question of why they went there in the first place, which we do know the answer to, obviously. Yeah. It's because that's the trade-off for advancing the same-sex marriage plebiscite in terms of the internals of the coalition. But 
Anyway, extraordinary. Yeah, but I, I do not want to pull us into a bog here, ladies. No, no, so no because the point is, because he's the minister for everything, we're exaggerating a little. He had lots of other questions. <laughs> um, we know, for instance, that he wants to treat digital media the same as mainstream media and also reform defamation laws. That was really interesting too, wasn't it, Catherine? He made some announcements around that. Well, it was it was really action packed. This speech, I've got to say, there was there was really so much in it. But yeah, that was quite that was quite significant. I think both from the point of view of he is obviously advancing some changes to defamation law, but we also know that the government at the at the moment is working up a response to the ACCC's digital platforms review, which was a really extensive, terrific piece of work earlier in the year from the competition regulator about what do you do about Facebook. Google and those those platforms that are really that have that have grown too large, are too influential, and don't face enough regulation. Basically, so Porter gave us an industrial size hint, I think, in that speech that uh, in the government's mind, the platforms, so Facebook and Twitter and others, are viewed in their minds as the same as publishers of mainstream media. That is quite big <laughs> in mm. its in its potential, if you start to think in about it. In its implications, now, yeah. Well, yeah. It's sort of mind-blowing, actually. Uh, one, the platforms will hate it because they will be forced to exercise some editorial responsibility for content on their websites. Which, which considering have... the amount of content, is almost mission impossible, really. Well, well, well. It, yes, yes, it is, Fran, because obviously there is so much content. But, look, I'm sorry to be harsh about this, but the platforms have basically said over and over over the last few years, that they do not want editorial responsibility. They want to create products that have massive eyeballs, that are massive data harvesting operations, uh, but they do not want the basic responsibility of ensuring whether content on their platform is true, false, defamatory, whatever else. All I would say about that is nice work if you can get it, guys. The rest of us have to operate in in quite different conditions. Now, obviously, I'm I am bringing a bias into this conversation. I'm a I'm a journalist, and I am deeply and profoundly irritated by the platform's impact on our businesses and on our capacity to do our work, which yeah. I think remains important and in the public interest. But look, I'm sorry. It is a big and complex thing, obviously, for these massive platforms to start to look or police editorial content. And I don't mean that in a thought police way. I mean, just make sure it's not defamatory or make sure it's not actual lies, fake news, misinformation and disinformation, which also hovers at all ends of these platforms and is having a corrosive impact on democracies all around the world. The signal that Christian Porter is sending to these platforms is, hey, guys, the party just might be over. And I would absolutely support not only the Australian government, but other governments saying to these platforms, you have made a mozza out of people's capacity to trade off their own privacy for convenience. And also these guys have not demonstrated thus far any sense of civic responsibility. Yeah, It's a much bigger conversation, yeah. obviously, than we can do here, but I'd just say five stars, Christian yeah. Porter. Catherine, you're kind of our resident energy expert here on the party room <laughs> because you are the only person I know because who's I totally obsession. across everything. Yeah. Energy well, ministers, state obsession. and federal, will meet yes. 
this week. Now, this is a, a long time coming, this meeting. The federal government's been resisting it for a while. That's right. The yep. energy ministers have been asking. Look, just to make it clear, we're recording this on a Thursday morning. That meeting's in Perth on Friday. Late so we, on Friday. Yeah, too, so we don't guys, know. Yeah. There'll be outcomes you'd, you'd expect and hope, Catherine. But just give us... Uh, almost the elevator pitch of what's what they're yeah. trying to achieve. Yeah, here, sure. what the states sure. want to get out of it in particular, I think. I think we can do this simply, right? The federal government had a policy mechanism to regulate energy. It was called the National Energy Guarantee. That hit the fence when Malcolm Turnbull lost the Liberal Party leadership. The states, ever since that point, have been out and about saying, uh, knocking on Angus Taylor's door saying, oh, excuse me, um, can we have some policy so we know how, you know, how investment... In, in new generation and transmission and all these important things is going to work because right now we've got no policy, we've got no idea and we've got business, you know, energy users, people knocking on our door every five minutes saying, um, what's going to happen here, guys? So phase one was the Liberal states, interestingly, trying to persuade Angus Taylor and Scott Morrison to bring back the National Energy mm. Guarantee. Now, that hasn't happened. In fact, so that's now why we haven't th- had a meeting for a year, I think. So yeah, exactly. So now what? Exactly. Exactly. So they've been trying, you know, that's, that was the pitch and the Commonwealth held them out by declining to have this meeting, right? Why they tried desperately, they've been sitting around thinking, oh, crikey, what do we do now? We can't bring back the neg because we said that was dreadful. So now we've got to do something else. So the something else is part of the discussion on Friday in Perth. And what the states have been doing have been uh, sitting there developing quite substantial wish lists of stuff they want. So new generation in their jurisdictions, new transmission to link systems across state boundaries. They've all been sitting there with their notepads thinking, hmm, what can we hit up the Commonwealth for in terms of funding? At least some of that is going to be under discussion in Perth on Friday. So to cut a long story short, instead of having a transparent policy mechanism that everyone can see to guide investment, now we're going to have a bunch of deals between Canberra and the states in order to fix some of these problems. So that's that's the helicopter view. Well I love done. how you did that. That's that was perfect. brilliant. Look, I just want to note something that I know our podcast listeners would not have missed this week, particularly the diehard political ones, those who were just waiting for us to tell you stuff you're about to hear, because the federal government scrapped a key aspect of its controversial robo-debt scheme this week, and that's just weeks before this Victorian legal aid case against it was due to begin. This issue has been plagued with controversy because essentially it employs this data matching algorithm which has resulted in tens of thousands of people being issued with incorrect notices to repay Centrelink debt. So it's a big admission. Very traumatic for people. Very be, traumatic. Yeah, it's, to get this is a big I know people story. have got them. It's it's horrible. And then mm. you know a lot of people have been found to have been breached um, unfairly, and so money is going to have to be paid back. But all the time the government's saying no, no, no. Ta- taxpayers want to make sure that we're using big data to make sure we're not you know overpaying people. Yeah. So it's a huge admission, and I think. If you think about what is politics for, well, delivery of government services and treating people with dignity is at the centre. And so that's why I think this is such a big story. But, Catherine, how do you think the government's handled it? Because Stuart Roberts, the minister, he came out and announced it. Government saying not sorry. This is simply a further refinement of a process that's been ongoing. But Labor has been hammering them. So have the Greens. They've been running this for a long time. Bill Shorten Mm. is actually the Labor opposition person in charge of this area. It's what they should have done all along. It's an admission of fault, in my opinion. I mean, why else would they be doing it? How is this playing out? Well, I think it's it's pretty extraordinary that it, it looks like the government has never really asked itself the really fundamental question, which is, is what we're doing legal? 
It appears that oh, question. That's a good well, question. Well, I asked well, Christian Porter in that interview that you really need to catch up on, uh, Catherine Murphy. <laughs> no, 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 darling. I saw that. Did bit you? Of the interview. He said was, that they had going, advice was, and it wasn't. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Exactly. No, I was going to get to that. Oh, right? thank you, like, thank I did, you. I, All right, I did, I'm waiting. No, I'm waiting. I, I did see that bit of the interview, love. I didn't see the other bit. I'm sorry, I don't know what I was doing. <laughs> no, anyway. this was the good bit. I'm happy. So I saw you ask him that question, which is a very important question. Good question, PK, about whether or not what you've got is legal. Now, but it looked like. From his, from the way he answered it, Patricia, that the government did get advice in relation to this particular case, and as a consequence of the advice that it got in relation to this particular case, they nixed a key element of the system, which implicitly doesn't bode well for what that legal advice no. says. Right? That legal advice clearly indicates, Houston, we've got a problem. But despite the fact that. A lot of people were reporting on the problems in this scheme, both at the human dimension, which is what you were referencing a minute ago, Fran, right? People really upset people having to deal with this stuff. But also some of these systemic issues, right, have been reported pretty doggedly by a bunch of people saying, I think we've got some issues here, guys. And there have been cases too in the Administrative Appeals Tribunal and places like that, I think. But if we're to take what the AG said to you, Patricia, at face value that the government has not, until this particular case, sought legal advice, ask yourself the foundational question, are we acting legally? <laughs> it's just that to me is amazing. If, if that's what's actually happened and that is a reasonable interpretation based on what came out of Christian Porter's mouth on your program, then that's pretty wacky, isn't it? Well, it's a failure at the bureaucratic level, you'd have to say. I mean, this program was designed and managed by bureaucrats. They've been facing up to Senate estimates for a few years now on this. That's a grave failure, isn't it? Well, exactly. How the hell do you not ask yourself? How do you be the Commonwealth and not ask yourself, are we acting legally? Are we acting lawfully? Constantly in politics, we're surrounded by what there's, right? But that that was really pretty big for me. I thought, good Lord, can you actually mean what you're saying? But anyway, so how's it playing out Obviously, the government on the part of taxpayers does have an obligation, if there are overpayments, to chase them back. But this has, as you said, Fran, like there's been a major human cost to this. Is just absolutely horrendous examples that you can read every day of the week about people who have been required to pay back debts, some of which have not been owed because of mistakes. Dreadful unconscionable. So I would say bad. Like the simple answer, has it playing out? Bad. On right. that note, Catherine, you've been fabulous as always. Have Catherine a good Murphy. sitting week fortnight. It all starts oh. next week. We will oh be back. Dear, I'm holding my head. I'm holding my You'll head. You'll be right. See you, Catherine. All right. See ya. Time for question time. And we've got a question time submission from Lucas. Great name. Love the name Lucas. Uh, he apologises in advance if we can hear his one-year-old in the background. But, you know, don't apologise. That, that. that is what I love most. We love the whole family listening to the party room. Yeah, they get, the, get the kids involved. It's a family affair. Dump, dump ABC for kids. Get them onto the party room. Hi, friend and PK. I want to get your thoughts on the media scrum. This is something I've always seen and thought it must be good for democracy to have a vibrant media in Australia. But it must be bad for democracy to have such a big crowd where you know you have these press conferences with journalists all wanting to ask different questions. And so the Prime Minister has this ability to ignore or tough questions. He can leave that in the bubble and then just pick the questions he wants. Or where you know, the Prime Minister, opposition leader, whoever it may be, is walking down the local shopping centre 
and there's just such a big crowd of camera crew and everything, it must be intimidating. And so the only people brave enough to approach him are the ones who have very strong political views. Uh, I mean, I just want to get your thoughts. I, I guess the opposite of the media scrum must be the debate where it's highly scripted and, you know, Sky News or ABC runs the debate themselves. But I'm just not sure what the uh, what your thoughts are, whether there is an alternative. Yeah, you make some good points. I, I think, personally, I think there is a place for the scrum because it puts a politician under pressure when there's more than one journalist in the pack. It depends where the scrum is, right? Because you're also right, it allows the sort of the range of topics to be scattergun and nothing is followed up. There's two different ways a scrum can happen. When they walk out at Parliament House in Canberra and there's a scrum of political journalists, I think that is maximum pressure on a politician by and large and they can't usually escape a hard question because there is a follow-up. And sometimes on the election trail, when there's a small gang of journalists travelling together, they will get together and they will work out amongst themselves what topic it is they really want to press. We saw this in the recent visit to Washington when the Prime Minister was asked about the story that was in the Washington Post, I think, about the Hillsong invitee to the dinner. And uh, the Prime Minister tried to dismiss it. And there was follow-up from not one but two other journalists. So it can work very well. But you're right, sometimes, PK, it is a bit frustrating because your question gets wiped and then someone takes it off somewhere else. Yeah, look, I think it's great, though, overall, even though it has weaknesses because I think when you do regular interviews with your favourite radio host because maybe you get the kind of treatment you want, although sometimes they turn on you, uh, so it doesn't always work out that way. But I think that's a really controlled environment. Clearly the media scrum, whatever that is, where you have a big press conference in the Prime Minister's courtyard, that is a very democratic way to take questions. A couple of critiques, and people won't be surprised that I'm going to say these things, but I know as a young female journalist I felt like it was older men that had the loudest voices. See, I never did. I always felt like... At the start I did and then I... I could pipe up and that was where I really felt liberated because... It was all in. For me, it shifted. And I think it'd be interesting if we interviewed other journalists about that. Um, Sure, at the beginning of my career, I was quite young when I went to Canberra, actually. I did feel like it was really hard to get in. And then, I, yeah, I muscled up, if that's the term, and I found strategies to get my voice heard. And I did get heard. But it it took a strategy and it takes a certain kind of character and it takes a certain kind of prime minister, if I can add that, who's really aware. And something I will say is I've noticed a few leaders do this, even Bill Shorten used to do it, where they sort of notice uh, maybe sometimes gender disparities and they say, hang on a minute, I haven't taken a, you know, I think that's actually quite a good thing, especially when male booming television voices, because they often are, dominate. I do not like that. I do think, though, that a scrum is no match for a good, considered, hard-hitting political interview because when a politician is subjected to a really top grilling from a top political interviewer, then, you know, that is priceless, I think. And they don't offer themselves up to it very often. I I will say for John Howard, he used to say to me he'd never say no to Kerry O'Brien on the 7.30 report because he wore it as a badge of honour that he never said no, that he always fronted up to that tough interview. So, And he's deeply respected in the Liberal Party. They still quote that whenever I whinge, oh, they're reluctant about the three prime ministers. Like, it's not just targeting Scott Morrison. They'll say, yeah, John Howard turned up. So they actually hold him up for that. Mm. But look, just another thing. If I, I just want to say one more thing about the Scrum. I actually think a lot about these things. I would. It's my profession and how we deal with things. What I like about the Scrum is that you don't always get groupthink and that you will get sort of, I don't know, some person from a tabloid asking a question about something that you might not care about. It's right? kind of like crowdsourcing, right? It is. But, but you know, this country has a lot of issues. So when someone, and I'd often go in the early part of my career and I found my voice and I'd ask some Indigenous affairs question and I would get looked at like, what? Like, why? But I, 
that was the Prime Minister and I wanted to know something and that was my chance. <laughs> so you can have opportunities that you wouldn't get in that kind of, you know, that hard-hitting radio interview. But anyway, that's the way it works. I think it's overall a good thing and there's nothing quiet about journalists. Great question, Lucas. Thank you. Okay, bye everyone. Until next time, we're on Twitter. Maybe we should get off Twitter, but we're still on Twitter. Our hashtag is the party room. We are on Twitter, so you can tweet us your questions, your feedback, your comments, your concerns. You can email us at thepartyroom at abc.net.au. Rate, review, subscribe. Uh, that still is important. Like for as long as this podcast exists, Rate, that review, will always subscribe. be important. So tell your friends. See you, friend. See you, PK. Nearly three years in, and despite what he says... There was no collusion. ..the Russia story isn't going away. But for Vladimir Putin, the US election was only part of his plan. A Malaysian Airlines plane has crashed while flying over the eastern region of Ukraine. I've never been to Moscow. I've never met a Russian operative or agent. Russia, if you're listening, has returned for a third season, looking at Putin's grand chess match with the West. Subscribe now on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.